Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Reverend Canon, by that you know we're talking Episcopalian here. The Reverend Canon David W. Lovelace used a folktale from Burma to illustrate an important meaning for us from today's gospel reading of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a similar story, not exactly alike, but enough that it captures the meaning. As the story goes, a long time ago, a traveler was walking through the jungles of Burma when he came upon a small village. As night came, he decided to sleep just outside the village, along on the roadside, and would enter the village the next morning. He took his coin purse and found a stone nearby and placed it under the stone in order to make sure his money would be there in the morning. But a villager had spotted him hiding the purse and late at night returned and stole the money. When the traveler woke up, he saw the money was gone and sat down to weep. Seeing the man weeping, a crowd began to form on the edge of the village. And before long, the mayor joined the crowd and inquired about the situation. The mayor listens to the man's story and asked to see the stone. The traveler showed him where the stone was, and the mayor ordered the people to arrest that stone and bring it to the town square, and I will convene a court. Once the villagers and the man and the stone all got there, the mayor convened the court, whereupon the mayor asked the stone, what is your name? The stone was silent. The mayor leaned forward closer to the stone and demanded, where did you come from? More silence. By this time, some of the villagers were casting glances at each other. The mayor then said, so tell me, why were you loitering outside our village? At this, some of the villagers actually laughed. The mayor turned to the crowd and said, show some respect. This is a court of law. The mayor turned back to the stone. You will not answer my question, so I hold you in contempt of court. You will have 30 lashes with a stick. And the crowd could no longer contain themselves and erupted into raucous laughter. And the mayor turned to the crowd. Have you no respect for this court? I fine every one of you a coin apiece. One by one, the humbled villagers came forward and dropped a coin in a bowl in front of the mayor. The mayor then gave the coins to the traveler and apologized for the crime that had occurred outside his village. The traveler's eyes filled with tears for what he had lost had been restored. The mayor wished the traveler were well and ordered the stone to be returned to the place where it was found. People talked about this story for a long time. Some people thought the mayor was a little off you know, but many thought that he had showed great wisdom because, you see, every time the villagers walked past the stone, they would be reminded that they shared the burdens of one another and all who passed that way. The challenge of today's gospel is that that's the whole point of the parable, isn't it? that we share the burdens of one another and all who pass by us. The, 
the truth is we tend to isolate this parable. And the reason is um, most pastors today, in the, in the, at least in the mainline Protestant tradition, will be preaching on this text. And so this is like Easter and Christmas and Pentecost. We hear this story again and again and again. And for most preachers, we will approach it from the standpoint of a morality tale. It is a story of, or, or a narrative, in which we can derive a moral about right and wrong, right? I mean, that's the obvious story there. And this is the perspective of the Burma story as well and reflects an example of how we are to treat each other. How we are to treat not just those who look like us, talk like us, walk like us, think like us, love like us, but anyone in need. Given our political and cultural situations right now, that has us looking at anyone who is different as a threat, this parable all of a sudden takes on timeless importance, as it always has, I suppose. So since Jesus' parting words to the legal expert are go and do likewise, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that the Good Samaritan does exactly? Well, lots of things, and he does a lot of things right. He sees the man in need when the man was invisible to the priest and the Levite. And the second thing he does is he not only sees the man, but comes. the, the scripture actually says draws close to him draws close to the man, even though most people might see him as a burden or a threat, the man draws close to him, and, and then uh, the man shows compassion, I mean great compassion, lets him ride on his donkey, uh, binds his wounds, um, takes him to an inn and cares for him, and then on top of all of that, then offers wages and says, I'll pay you, take care of this man, and I'll pay you when I get back for whatever I need to pay you to care for him. This is extraordinary. And it's important to note here that Jesus chose a Samaritan to be the central figure of the parable. We might rightly assume that Jesus chose the Samaritan to make his point. Even if a Samaritan, those hated by the Jews, can act this way, certainly you, who say you seek eternal life, should be able to do likewise. I don't know about you, but I get a little squeamish at that point. So when we hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, we personalize it. We say to ourselves, this is one man taking care of one man. I am one person taking care of one person or one small group of people. Um, and so we narrow it so tightly that we don't see the other lessons in the story. Those are good things to do. You know, when we had our ministry of going to the bridge and feeding the hungry, that was great stuff, taking care of people. You know, when we hand out uh, blessing bags at the corners where people are begging, that's good stuff because we're caring for people in need. I mean, there's all kind of good about that more morality tale, right? The right and wrong of it all. And 
we squirm, squirm a little bit because we often identify with the priest or the Levite, a little uncomfortable with the person hurt in the ditch and a little concerned that there might be a threat there or, or whatever. And so we know that about ourselves, don't we? I mean, think of it this way. How often in conversations about refugees and immigrants, those who sleep outside the boundaries of our homeland, have we been told not to see them as human beings, as neighbors, but as burdens and potential threats, potential threats being the big thing right now. I don't know if you noticed that. And how often are we fighting to come close to others simply because we don't want to bear their pain? It's too painful. We don't want to bear their pain or to be open to their need. We're afraid we'll get sucked in and perhaps drown in it. I mean, think about this in terms of the characters in the parable. Now, think about this. We've got a good Samaritan who's not really supposed to be good because he's a Samaritan. And we've got a priest who's supposed to be good and a Levite who's supposed to be good. And they pass by on the other side. And then we've got the man in the ditch. We don't know who he is. We can assume he might be Jewish. <laughs> so here's the thing. I want you to think about the person or persons you most dislike in the world. I mean, really. The person or persons that you most dislike. In fact, I would go so far to say might even hate. Strong word. But I've more than once shouted epithets at the TV. So um, now what I want you to consider is what would it take for you to become vulnerable to them? Bearing their pain, being open to their needs, because the people we dislike the most carry a lot of pain. I'll wager. And consider this, consider that you're the one in the ditch. And you look up and you see that person you most dislike in the world coming to care for you, to bind up your wounds, to be vulnerable to you, and have compassion for you. Now, it might be a stretch for you to go there, but think about that. Because as much as we all have the capacity to pass by on the other side, we also have the capacity to care for the person. And that means that all of us, not just all of us who think alike and look alike and talk alike and worship alike, that it's everybody has that capacity. Jason Coker, who founded an award-winning nonprofit called Delta Hands for Hope in his hometown of Shaw, Mississippi, uh, wrote some essays for a book called Contagious Generosity, Creating a Culture of Giving in Your Church. He says, we all know that generosity that is altruistic when the giver expects nothing in return from the recipient. And Coker points out both that this is both a guiding characteristic of God and a distinguishing mark of God's realm. This kind of generosity. Giving, expecting nothing in return. That's a tall order. But that's exactly what the Samaritan does. Any community, Coker says, that practices such generosity 
must step away from the ways of the surrounding culture. And that was true for Christians in the world, in the Roman Empire, and also those who resist consumerism today. And that generosity of God's reign is still subversive today. Coker notes this, and I love this. Listen, you got to listen to me here. <laughs> Consumerism promotes retail therapy, the idea that we can buy our way to happiness. And this therapy is obviously based on receiving rather than giving, and yet the Christian model is the kind of free generosity that gives without expecting a to, be, to receive something. And it's called shared possessions. Now, clearly, the Good Samaritan, Jesus' parable, and the mayor of Burma's folktale are talking about people who understand shared possessions and how living as a community, that community who shares possessions can right, turn the world right side up. Father Richard Rohr explains that we are essentially social beings and only one part of the reflection of the great mystery of God. We are essentially connected with one another. The pattern of the universe is that we are one. And so Jesus chooses a Samaritan to act like he would act. Jesus chooses an outcast to play his role in this morality tale. Jesus identifies as one rejected by his culture to demonstrate God's action in the world. Rohr goes on to point out that we come to know who God is through exchanges of mutual knowing and loving. Do you hear that? Now, God's basic method of communicating God's self is not to the saved individual, the rightly informed believer, or even a person with a career in ministry. God communicates primarily through the journey and bonding process that God initiates in community. Marriages, friendships, families, tribes, nations, schools, organizations, and churches who are seeking to participate in the coming realm of God. Isn't that good? All of which makes me wonder if there's yet another lesson in this parable. That God shows up where we least expect God to be. No one expected God to come as an infant. And yet God does and did. No one expected God to reveal God's glory through the disgrace of the cross. And yet God did and God does. And no one expected or even wanted God to reveal power through vulnerability and suffering. But that's what happens. And that's why God chooses a Samaritan to tell his story to remind this self-justifying legal expert, which is to remind all of us, that there is no self-justification possible because the moment we can justify ourselves, we no longer need to care about those around us. Turns out this parable is really about God, isn't it? Our God who comes to us as community, three in one, and comes to us in vulnerability, and comes to us in ways we never, ever, ever could have expected. Sister Joan Chittister says, we are here to become community. We are on an odyssey with potentiality, and we know it. We have been foreordained to make humanity more humane. Foreordained. 
And if what she says is true, then there are no bystanders. Several years ago, I went to a program at the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum. Years ago, I had become intrigued with the Holocaust, perhaps because my dad, Papa Hutt, was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne in World War II. And not only did he jump in the middle of the night into France, I mean, who could do that? But his division under Major General James N. Gavin liberated the Vauvelin concentration camp at Ludwigslust, Germany. So when I learned through a friend that Dallas was building a premier Holocaust and Human Rights Museum, I began to attend programs and learn about their mission that goes beyond just educating about the Holocaust, but the educating about all human rights. They have a program that's called an upstander program that they teach to elementary and junior high and high school students and to adults. It means that people make a covenant that they will stand up for other people and their rights. They will combat injustice, inequality, or unfairness when they see something wrong and, and they will work to make it right. And they've named people in our community to be upstanders that have been upstanders. So we have models. And, um, and you know, as I read that just now, I thought, well, this is what we say when we are baptized. That we will follow Jesus, that we will stand against evil, that we will do these things. And, and these things, this way of being in the world, makes us a church that is alive. That, that eternity, when, when the legal experts ask for eternity, Jesus is clear that eternity happens now, right now, in how we care for others. I think it's Barbara Brown Taylor. It may have been somebody else, but the question was asked, uh, what is breaking your heart right now? And the answer that you give is your calling, your ministry. The thing that is breaking your heart right now is your ministry. Our pastors, deacons, and tomorrow night our council will discuss and have a conversation about where are our hearts breaking right now in this community? And I want to ask you online, where are your hearts breaking in your community? And at a meeting following our worship on Sunday, July 31st, we're inviting our whole church to gather and to talk about that. Where are our hearts breaking and what are we going to do about it in the next five months? We're not going to do everything because we can't. But we're going to choose two, maybe three things that we can do that will help us transform our corner of the world so that every time we turn our eyes to the cross and every time we walk by our neighbors in need, we may be reminded that we are to share the burdens of one another and all who pass our way. Thanks be to God. Amen.